0: This is Marcy Taylor from English, and I'm Merlin Mallory from Philosophy and Religion. On behalf of the Teaching and Learning Collective, we'd like to welcome you to what we hope will be an ongoing conversation at CMU about student learning. The Teaching and Learning Collective, the TLC, started last year as a grassroots faculty initiative to try to find practical and effective strategies for improving students' critical thinking skills. We were responding to student needs we saw in our own classrooms, but which, according to institutional research, are pretty widespread across the campus. The TLC hosted an all-day conference last January, and many of the participants continued to meet through the spring to talk about the strategies for working on critical skills that we learned at the conference, and how they were working as we tried to apply them to our classrooms. For the most part, our conversations stayed on track, but they were very easily derailed by a single question that came up over and over. Have you heard about academically adrift? As more and more of us heard about the book and read it, and more and more of us realized how widespread the problems were that we were trying to address, a plan began to emerge. First. We wanted to see if we could interest others outside of the Teaching and Learning uh, Collective in joining this conversation about student learning, especially in dealing with the findings from Academically Adrift. And second, we wanted to start that conversation with a visit from the authors. By the end of May, we had our answers, yes and yes. And so we would like to thank our sponsors on behalf of the TLC, the College of Humanities, the Social and Behavioral Sciences, the Faculty Center for Innovative Teaching, and the provost who made this event possible. We'd like to ask Provost Shapiro to welcome you and to introduce our authors.
1: Good evening, welcome to tonight's talk. First, I would like to thank the Teaching and Learning Collectivity for their efforts in bringing together to bringing to, to us tonight Dr. Aram and Dr. Rokshaw for to our campus for tonight's talk. CMU's mission statement states, "At Central Michigan University, we are a community committed to the pursuit of knowledge, wisdom, discovery, and creativity." we provide student-centered education and foster personal and intellectual growth to prepare our students for productive careers, meaningful lives, and responsible citizenship for a global society. In achieving our mission statement, a primary goal for the university must be and is student learning. We like to think that our students are very different when they complete their undergraduate program at CMU than when they first came to us. While our Institutional Research Office reveals many success in the edu- educational experiences of our students, we also have some evidence that Central Michigan University is not immune to the problems in student learning identified by Richard Aram and Yosepa Raksha. Over the years, we have made constructive efforts to, to address these problems at the university, but it is time to renew our efforts. Some of our faculty members in the audience tonight will remember our efforts in the early 2000s when we addressed the issue of academic expectations for students, for faculty, and for administrators. And at the same time, we focused on halting and reversing grade inflation on our campus, and we were successful in doing so. In the mid-2000s, a committee was appointed to investigate what was needed to raise academic performance of our students and some, but not all, of their recommendations were implemented. While we can take pride in our accomplishments to foster student learning, we need to continue our attention on this, and the recent publication of Academically Adrift provides a useful starting point uh, for these efforts. In this book, we find a thorough examination of a disappointing but widespread trend throughout higher education that limited learning among college students after two years or even four years is common. These findings were supported, well supported by evidence and clearly urgent, threatening both the quality of our education system as well as our democracy. The authors focus on core outcomes of education, critical thinking, analytical reasoning, problem solving, and writing. These are critical competencies as much of the facts that we teach you as students and much of the facts that you learn will soon be forgotten or become out of date. While the problems that emerge are complex and we're all implicated, there are also clear indications of the path ahead if we're to reverse this trend and to refocus our institution. Our greatest concern is of course our own university and our own students And and so it is up to us to consider the evidence, the problems and solutions that make our own way forward to improve student learning. We need all the university community to be active participants in these efforts. We are grateful to have Drs. Arum and Dr. Roksa here to begin our efforts, and it's my honor to introduce the two speakers tonight. Dr. Richard Arum is Professor of Sociology Education at New York University, and Program Director of Education Research of the Social Science Research Council. He authored Judging School Discipline, The Crisis of Moral Authority, and co-directed a comparative project on expansion, differentiation, and accents to higher education in 15 countries, which was then published as Stratification in Higher Education, a Comparative Study. Yosipa Rokcha is Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Virginia, She's also a faculty affiliate at the Center for Advanced Study of Teaching and Learning at the University of Virginia, and a fellow of the National Forum on the Future of Liberal Education. Please welcome them to our campus.
2: So uh, thank you, Gary. Uh, and Merlin and Marcy for such a a gracious introduction. And uh, we uh, thank you for coming out tonight um, to make time for this. And uh, let me just start off by uh, uh, putting one issue aside, uh, because I know these are very tense times here for me to come to Michigan. So let me say from the onset, although I teach at New York University, I'm not a Yankee fan. (laughs) Okay, Set that aside, now we can get to the work at hand. the, the, work we're, uh, uh, the, the work we're presenting today is part of a large-scale social science project that although Yosef and I are here today to present the research, it really is the result of a much larger uh, collective, collaborative effort. Our grad students uh, collaborated and co-authored some of the chapters. We partnered with the Council for Aid to Education which developed this assessment indicator we use, the collegiate learning assessment, arguably the state-of-the-art instrument out there. We'll tell you a little bit about that soon. Um, they developed that test and administered and scored it for us and made the data available. We also partnered with 24 colleges and universities that opened their doors to us and with students that consented to be part of our project, um, uh, took the assessment, surveyed and uh, uh, made their allowed their transcript data to be made available to allow this social science project. It also required the funding of uh, 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 a large number of foundations, including Lumina, Carnegie, Ford, and uh, the Teagle Foundation. Uh, so we're up here presenting today, and we're presenting uh, in part on this book that came out in January. It got lots of attention. It's uh, If if you're an avid reader of Doonesbury, you might notice that last month it even appeared in the Doonesbury Strip on a Sunday. Um, The book is on only the first two years of uh, college student outcomes. Uh, We wrote the book, but it's published for University of Chicago Press. Academic presses move very, very slowly. They had the manuscript. Took them about two years to get it out. By that time, we had data on all four years of college student outcomes. So we'll update the book. We'll give you data on all four years. And also, we now have followed these same students who graduated, if they graduated on time in fall 2009, we have uh, 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 continued to follow them up for the last two years into this very difficult economic environment that we're, we're living in. And so we care about these issues because we care about these students. And so how are they faring today? We'll we'll, we'll update the book with those findings tonight as well. Now, what are you gonna walk away with today at the end? Uh, And you're gonna have specific answers to four research questions. We'll also talk a little bit at the end about what we think is going on, why we're getting the data results we are, the findings we're we're getting. We'll also discuss what colleges and universities can do about what, uh, these problems. However, that's interpretation, that's, that's our best guess, why this is the case and what to do about it. What we're gonna have concrete answers on, as social, based on the social science, is these four questions here. First, are students learning critical thinking, complex reasoning, and written communication while at college. It's not everything a college and university is about. It's about you know, your subject specific skills, you might be learning social skills, all sorts of other things. But these arguably are one of the most important things you learn in college and university. Critical thinking, complex reasoning, and written communication. The higher order skills, the generic skills that translate from job to job, industry to industry, occupation to occupation. These are the things that you can take with you the rest of your life to make you an effective democratic citizen, but also effective uh, as an employee in the labor market. Second, Josip and I are, are, are sociologists, and we're very focused on issues of social inequality. So we will address the second question, to what extent is there inequality in learning outcomes Uh, for college students. And we're focused as sociologists on characteristics ascribed to one at birth. Characteristics that individuals have nothing to do with other than they're born with these characteristics. This would be their race, their gender, and their social class background. And these factors affect social inequality in schools, labor markets, and so on. So we'll ask the second question. Is there inequality in learning outcomes in higher education? Third, and the most important question for students and faculty, administrators in the room that want to improve learning outcomes, what are the social contexts, the instructional uh, practices associated with some students learning more than others, some students learning greater amounts? What are the factors that predict learning? And then finally, as I mentioned before, we'll look at how uh, these The college graduates in 2009 are faring today in these difficult uh, economic times?
3: Now, if you wanted to answer that question in K through 12, it would be a fairly easy thing to do, right? There are lots of large-scale data sets in which the federal government has tracked, you know, 10, 20,000 of students over time, giving them tests um, in math and reading usually, sometimes science, year after year, and you could actually see how much are students learning? Which ones are learning more? What factors are associated with that? Well, once students enter higher education, there is actually nothing like it. They do not test student learning. We only follow students to see if they're graduating. And that's an important task. We want students to graduate, but we also want them to have these kinds of skills. So to answer the questions which were just posed, we had to design our own study and collect our own data. Um, the study that we are using, we are calling the, collegi- uh, the determinant of college learning, it's a longitudinal study that's important to note. So we are following students from the fall of 2005, when they first got into college, through their college careers. So through the sophomore year, and then through the end of their senior year, and subsequently into the labor market, one year out and two years out, right? And so we have the same students at multiple points in time, and we can really see what kind of skills they came in with in 2005, and then what happened to them over time. Um, it is a large-scale study uh, as Richard mentioned. We had 24 institutions about 2,300 students in the first two years It changes slightly if you look at subsequent years and those institutions vary a great deal Okay, they represent us higher education quite well. There are small schools and big schools public schools private schools different levels of selectivity um, Different all four regions of the country urban rural etc. So the schools that are in the study represent well um, how we may think about higher education as a whole so the students were asked a series of questions. They were asked about uh, their study habits, about the courses they were taking, about the activities they were engaged with, um, a range of, range of things that we may want to know about what college students are doing. But we also gave them um, this test that is called CLA, okay, the Collegiate Learning Assessment. It's a test that aims to measure these general higher order skills, so critical thinking, complex reasoning, and writing. Now, this test, it's a direct measure of learning. Okay? And why is that important? Is because in the past, we've, always, we've often asked students. You know, they, f- they spend four years into college, in the senior year, you have your exit survey, and you're asked, well, how much do you think you've learned? Well, students all think they've learned a lot. Okay? So the question was, can we document that? Can we have some kind of objective measure that actually shows the gains from the freshman to the senior year? Um, and so this is a direct measure of learning. It's not a multiple choice. We think that's important. And the measure is designed to place students in the kinds of situations they may face in the labor market, right? So it is a holistic assessment based on real-world scenarios. Um, and this is what that might look like. So you're student. You come into the assessment room. It's all on a computer. You're gonna come into the computer. You're gonna see a scenario, okay? This might be one scenario, something like that. It says that you're an assistant to Pat Williams, the president of DynaTech, and in that sense, the question is about purchasing a plane. Um, you were about to purchase this particular plane, um, the Swift Air 235, and there was an accident with the plane. And so now, should you do it? Okay, should you purchase that plane even though there was an accident involving that plane? Okay. Uh, again, this is um, scenarios come from all from humanities, social sciences, all you know, business, different kinds of realms. But in essence, is you're given some kind of a task, some kind of a scenario, some kinds of a question, some kind of a dilemma, and then you're given um, about five or six different documents, okay? Um, and the documents will depend on the task. Um, and so you could get reports. Um, you can get here comparisons of the plane you were going to get with other planes. You could get some email exchanges, right? But you're getting information that allows you to make the decision about whether that plane is still something you should invest in or not. Okay? So the student's job, okay, or the task, is really to read all of those documents, to think through them, to analyze them, synthesize the information, and then use it to write an argument. Whether you should actually purchase that plane or not, right? And so when we're talking about critical thinking, complex using, and writing during the talk today, what we're talking about is students are writing an essay to this kind of a prompt and that essay being evaluated. And so that is going to be our judgment um, in terms of critical thinking, complex using, and writing. If you want to learn a lot more about the different tasks, about how they're scored, how different dimensions are assessed, uh, you can see the website that's down at the bottom.
2: So, you know, that's not an easy task to do, right? This is a complex task with multiple documents to consider, synthesize information, and write a logical argument based on it, not a simple task to do, but exactly the kind of task you would expect college students to be able to do better at the longer they were uh, enrolled uh, attending uh, uh, an institution. So now you know a little bit about our assessment indicator. You know that we surveyed them and collected their transcripts. Let's cut to the chase. Let's get to the findings. The next two slides, I think, pretty much tell it all. First of all, these are survey results based on what we asked students the spring of their sophomore year. We said, think back about the semester that came before you, the fall of your your sophomore year, fall of your sophomore year. How many courses did you take which required more than 20 pages of writing over the course of the semester? Over the course of the semester, more than 20 pages. And we asked how many courses? Naive social science question. We thought three, four courses maybe like this. The student surveys came back and they were so skewed to zero that we present here just did you take any course like this? because 50% of the students said zero. They said, we did not have a single course last semester when we were asked to write more than 20 pages over the course of the semester. We also asked them, how many courses did you take where you were asked to read more than 40 pages per week on average? 40 pages per week on average. Both these are kind of, if you will, arbitrary cutoffs, we got them from existing instruments that are out there in the higher ed literature, we didn't make them up. They're imperfect measures, but they get at something, right? How many courses, 40 pages per week uh, on average? Again, 32% came back, none, no course like this. Large numbers of students had figured out a way to get through college and university Without being asked to take courses that have required reading, much reading, and without taking courses that require much writing, right? That was—it's clear from the, clear from just the survey responses alone that you could see this. And and how do they find that out? Well, of course, the social media out there today allows you to know where the programs you need to take that are the easy programs that are going to give you uh, the, the the GPA and the credential without doing the work. Where are the programs? Where are the courses? Where are the professors? You can find that all out online. It would take you about two minutes. Next important slide. What are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your time? Well, you know, it came back. It was, you know, a bit of a surprise to us, right? They said, uh, this is, we turned it into a pie chart here, but the 9% on the top there is 15 hours a week students say they're attending class in lab. And 15 hours, they're attending class and lab if they actually show up every day in the classroom. You know, I've uh, taught a long time now, and often there's some empty seats. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They're attending class and lab regularly. Fifteen hours a week, what about studying? The students will come back and they told us, we study on average 12, 13 hours a week. And a third of that time, we study with our friends. We study with our friends, and uh, you know, we'll show you, we'll talk a little later, studying with friends does not track with growth on the CLA measure. It actually empirically tracks with declines on this measure, okay? Not our, not our this is the, what, the data, what the data, what the data shows. So 12 to 13 hours, a third with, with friends, that would be eight hours a week studying alone. Eight hours a week studying alone. 36% of the kids in our, in our study said, we study alone five or fewer hours per week. Five or fewer hours a week, less than an hour a day. Oh, less, You know we had the transcripts. Oh, wait till we see these transcripts. These kids are gonna be getting hammered. You know what their grade point average was? 3.2. They don't need to study more. Remember, they don't, they've taken courses without reading requirements, without writing requirements. You can do fine in higher education today if you choose your courses correctly and uh, study five or fewer hours per week. Now, whether you can learn anything is, a, is, a, is, a, is another. Uh, uh, whether you can move up on the CLA indicator is something, uh, something, uh, something, uh, something, something different. Now, well, you know, maybe it was always like this, right? Maybe, uh, you know, people have been going to college, you know, going, having, uh, hanging out in fraternities, going to football games. We've been doing this a long time, right? No, one, no one's invented these uh, social and cultural forms today. Maybe it's always been like that, right? No, no. We know empirically from the data this is work that uh, two great labor economists are doing at the, from the University of California system, but it's national data. Philip Babcock, he said UC Santa Barbara, you can go online and pull up this paper yourself if you like on his website. They went back and every t- they looked at every individual time use survey of a full-time college student going all the way back to the 20s when students were asked How many hours were you studying and uh, preparing for class? All the way back to the 1920s. So we got survey data that goes all the way back. What does that pattern look like? Well, from the 1920s to 1960s, it's relatively constant. Students say they're they're spending 35 to 40 hours per week. A full-time college student says they spend 35 to 40 hours a week in academic pursuits. 15 hours in class, 25 hours studying. 40 hours a week, right, that's full-time, right? Something happens in 1960 where the meaning of a full-time college student, what it means to be a full-time college student changes. Something changes either in the institutional culture or the larger culture, but you see from 1960 on a dramatic decline in how many hours a full-time college student uh, um, spends studying. Again, from 25 hours in 1960 to about 12 to 13 hours today. A dramatic decline, about 50%. Now, is it just the technology that did it? Well, if it's just the technology, computers, they came in. Uh, I graduated in 1985, never had a computer in college. 86, 87 they started coming out. The data doesn't suggest this is all being driven by t- that new technology, something else is going on. Kids are working more today, true. They work about five more hours per week on average than kids in the past. But that's not five hours more working, but there's a 12 to 13 hour decline. Something else is going on. Uh, Maybe it's the fact that you can get through college and university today without, uh, without, without spending uh, uh, lots of hours studying. Remember, 36% of kids, five or fewer hours per week, and they were doing fine with a 3.2 GPA. Now, in, to show that, to, to really uh, make sure you're, you're clear on the point, there's a survey also of entering freshmen, entering freshmen orientation weekend. They start in 1971. They asked people coming into college and university, do you expect to get a B average or better? In 1971, 27% of kids said, yes, I expect to get a B average or better. What about today? They asked the same question. 70%, 70%. And of course, you know what? We don't disappoint, right? The customer is always right. Students are consumers and clients. They expect it, and we meet those demands. But by meeting those demands where the grades are given out like it's candy on Halloween, we sell sell the students short. We sell the students short in in serious ways. Now, a a way to see this is, uh, we got into the CLA results here. But notice, you don't even have to see the CLA results to know what the story's gonna be. If you just ask students what they're doing on college campus, large numbers of them, Not every student, some students are working, we found students working hard in every college and university we looked at. We found some taking reading courses with reading requirements, writing requirements, studying long hours, and uh, gaining a lot on the CLA. We found that everywhere, but large numbers were not. And so if you look at the results here, let me just emphasize this. It's not a surprise that 36% of students don't show any real gains after four years of college and university on this test. Uh, By real gains, we mean if the CLA was a 100 point test, zero to 100, 36% of, of, of students didn't go up even one point over a four year period. And if you guys think it's just the CLA, oh, these guys got a crummy measure. Every measure is imperfect. We'll concede that point immediately. The CLA is an imperfect, limited measure that's got problems, like all the rest. But I would tell you to look at uh, some what our colleagues are doing down at the w- Wabash Study of Liberal Arts uh, Schools. They've got uh, three dozen uh, other colleges and universities, four thousand students. They're not giving those students the CLA measure. They're giving them a different, a multiple choice measure of critical thinking and complex reasoning uh, called the CAP test. And what are they finding? They're finding results identical to ours. Our results are not a product of our sample. They're not a product of our instrument. They're a product of the reality of higher education today where again, large numbers of students are able to navigate through with very little asked of them.
3: Okay, so Richard's job was to make you all depressed, and my job is to bring some hope to this conversation.
0: <laughs>
3: Let's see if I can do that. Uh, so on average, right, gains aren't that impressive, and there are many students who are not showing gains over two years or even four years of college. While that is true, there are gains. Okay? There are students who are showing incredible gains over time, who are spending lots of time studying, who are taking hard classes. So there's lots of variation. Right? within this gloomy picture. And so some of the, after we saw the gloomy picture, we were trying to figure out what are some of the experiences, some of the context that may facilitate learning. Right? Under what conditions may students actually show improvement and not have these kinds of patterns. So we ran a lots of different models, and I'm not going to bore you with that. I'm going to just give you a summary slide of the factors that mattered at the end, right? So if you take the students, you, you control out their background factors, their SAT scores, AP classes, all of that stuff, and you're just looking at how much they're improving between freshman and sophomore year, these are the factors that make the difference, okay? It's faculty expectations, number one, okay? When students report that faculty have high expectations of students like themselves, they show substantially higher gains on the CLI measure than when they do not report high expectations. So faculty really make a difference. So do those courses. Okay? Even though, as Richard showed you, lots of students are making their way without taking the courses that require reading and writing. Some of them are taking those courses, and those who are taking those courses are showing the gains, okay? So if students are taking courses that require more than 40 pages of reading a week, more than 20 pages of writing over the course of the semester, they are showing gains on a CLA as compared to those who are not. Third, our studying alone, okay? The more time you spend studying, well, guess what? the higher the gains on your CLA. Now, that may not be surprising. It's time on task, right? The more time you spend at something, hopefully, the better you're gonna get at it. Well, the bad news is that only 12 hours a week are spent on this task, right? But if you spend more time on it, there are actually returns on showing gains on this kind of a task. And importantly, you see it says studying alone, although we're never really alone nowadays, right? We got our computers and our iPods and iPhones and everything else with us. Um, So, you know, but take take that alone in quotes, but at least studying alone. But if we look at studying with peers, so if we ask students how many hours a week do you spend studying with peers, that time spent studying with peers is actually negatively correlated with the gains on a CLI. Which suggests that studying with peers isn't really studying seems to be something else, and we haven't quite figured out what, but it's not studying, at least not this kind of studying. So studying alone makes a big difference. Focus on the task. Um, And the other thing that we look at student majors, okay, we looked at students who enrolled in different uh, programs, and we find that students who are in Um, what may be called traditional arts and science core, so natural sciences, social sciences, humanities, that those students show higher gains than students in other fields, and particularly higher than students in business and education. Business and education show the lowest gains over two years and actually over the four years of college. Um, and so here you can start seeing places where you can think about how to improve these outcomes, where right? you can kind of see some of the factors that make a difference, see some of the characteristics, some of the activities that actually facilitate student gains on the score. Now remember that second question was about inequality. I mean, we do want to show you a quick slides about what happens to students from different backgrounds. Okay. So here is a slide of uh, comparing students whose parents had a high school education or less, to those whose parents had a graduate uh, or professional degrees. This is 2005, okay? When they first enter college, there's a slight gap between the two groups, and you may expect that, based on K-12 and, and other experiences. There's a sm- small gap in 2005, and that gap stays about the same over time, okay? So the students who enter behind don't catch up, but they don't, even, they don't fall behind either. It's kind of, we call it persisting inequality, right? they stay at about the same rate over time. They're learning at the same rate, and so the gap stays the same. Now, with race ethnicity, the patterns we find are more disturbing. Um, we're showing you here the gap between African American and white students. In the book, we look at the gaps between Hispanics and Asian students as well, but, but we're showing here the African American white gap because that's the most stark of all of them. If you look at 2005, right, you see a large gap between African American and white students. So at the point of entry, the gap is large. It's much bigger right, than the gap that we saw here by family background, and it's not only that. Okay, the gap is huge in 2005, and the gap actually gets bigger over time. Okay, it's particularly the case in the first two years, where white students are gaining much more than African American students, who seem to be gaining very little or none. Okay and that kind of persists over time, or African-American students gain a little more in the last two years, but not you know, as much as white students. So the gap is large, and it gets bigger over time. It's something that we think really requires attention and careful thinking and talking about what's going on in our higher education, in case we 12, We've been talking about black-white test score gap forever and we've been worrying about it and talking about it and thinking about policies to decrease it. In higher education, we need to have that conversation. We need to talk about where this gap comes from and how we can address it. Now, you know, talking about the faculty expectations and our studying and these gaps by uh, family background and race and ethnicity brings us to another really important point, which is Where does the variation in learning come from? You can think about this as a question of, you know, who makes more of a difference, okay? Is it about institutions, is it about students? You can also think about it as an institution, right? What do you do? Should you look at next door? Should you look at a school next door and figure out what they're doing and then copy that? Or should you look inside and look at what's happening inside your own institution, okay? Our results are clear, it's the second, okay? About a quarter of the variation in learning, so how much students improve between 205 and 209, is across institutions. Okay? There are institutions that are doing better than others. Okay? In some institutions, students learn more than others. And so it could be useful to look at the successful ones and figure out what they're doing. But most of that variation, okay, almost three quarters of it, is within institutions. Okay? And what that says, is that every institution has students who are taking hard classes, who are studying hard, who are showing improvement on this test. Our colleague at Wabash, Charlie Blades says, every school has a zone of excellence and a zone of despair. Every school has students that are dedicated, showing the gains, committed to the learning, students who are not doing those things. And lots in the middle who are kind of muddling through and finding their way in the middle. And so, one implication here is right that while we are often tempted to look next door, the best place to look is to look inside, to figure out at your own campus what groups of students are doing really well, what groups may not be doing as well, and how you can help them and how can you improve their learning. Now, some of that variation across institutions um, is related to selectivity, and you may expect this finding that more selective schools Show slightly higher gains than less selective schools. This is a finding that's not that surprising. We see it in all kinds of other measures. We see it at graduation. Okay? So, graduation rates are slightly higher at schools with more selective at more selective schools than less selective schools. So, it's a pattern that's seen, and so it's worth you know it's worth to note. But keep in mind that even in these selective schools, there is a lot of variation in terms of how much students are actually gaining and which students are gaining and which ones are not. Now. As Richard pointed out at the beginning, by the time the book came out, uh, the students were not only done with college, they were actually in the labor market, in graduate school, they made the transitions after college. And so the question is, how are they doing? How are they doing one year out, two years out? We're gonna show you here a quick slide about how they're doing two years out. Okay. So this is two years after they graduated from college. This is 2011, May. They graduated college in 2009. They're not doing that well. They've entered a very difficult labor market, This is a very difficult time to be graduating, very difficult time to be entering the labor market. You can see about a third of them are back in school. They're attending school full-time. You know, only about 52% are actually working full-time. Many others are working part-time or actually unemployed. If you exclude students who are in school full-time, almost 7% of college graduates are not employed. Okay. They're unemployed by official definition, meaning they're not working and looking for work. Okay. That's a very high percentage, particularly when we're talking about college graduates. We're supposed to be doing way better than any other group. The other way to see how they're doing is some of the other indicators you see in the second part. Okay. They are heavily indebted. Okay. They're having trouble with labor market transitions, but they have lots of debt on their hands. Okay. Two-thirds of students report having loans, and those who have them have about $26,000 worth. Okay. Um, the fact that they're struggling is perhaps best reflected in the second bullet there, suggesting that about a quarter of the students two years after college are living back with their parents. Okay. One year after college it was about 30, 32%, so almost a third. Okay. So two years out of college, almost a quarter of the students are back at home, living with their families. And it's not only that they're kind of struggling with the labor market, struggling with the transition of getting a job, getting a stable job, a good paying job, but they're also demonstrating lack of what we would call civic engagement and civic awareness. We have asked students um, whether they read newspapers, online or in print, monthly, weekly, daily, never. And we have a third of the students, these are college graduates, two years after college, in these very difficult times, who are saying, we don't read the papers, or we read them monthly or never. Okay? And again, online or in print. And then we ask this question about uh, you know, discussing politics and public affairs. I think it's a really important component of a democratic citizenship, of democratic society, that you actually engage with others and discuss public affairs. And it was discuss public affairs in person or in print, um, you know, on, on email, on the phone, with family, friends, coworkers, I mean, anybody. I mean, this should have been a 100% answer, right? You can find somebody to talk to about public affairs. Well, you know, almost 40% of the students are saying, we do this monthly or never, okay? So, in addition to showing low CLA gains, which I think is something for us to think about, I think this is another part of the puzzle that we need to really pay attention to. The students are not only leaving college with relatively low levels of skills or little improvement in critical thinking, complex reasoning, and writing. They're also not developing some basic uh, kind of ideas and attitudes about participation in a democracy. Now the good news here is that these outcomes that we have shown you actually track what students do in college. So if you look at students who have high CLA scores, let's say in 2009, or who show engagement during college, who spend lots of hours studying, who showed improvement over time, who were taking those courses that require reading and writing. So if you look at the academically engaged students, they show, much better. They do much better on these outcomes. They're less likely to be unemployed. Um, they're more civically engaged. They're less likely to live at home, right, etc. So what students do in college, okay, and what kind of attitudes, disposition, skills they develop while they are in college and those things end up tracking later with what happens after they leave, both in terms of labor market, as well as other outcomes, civic and otherwise. And so it's important to keep in mind that what we do here matters not only for CLA, but matters for life after you leave here and after uh, college is over. Now we're gonna try to, now that we adequately depressed you, and, uh, we're gonna try to suggest some avenues of change. Uh, and some, some places that we may want to think about of how do we, how do we improve the situation, uh, assuming that we have convinced you that this is a situation that requires our attention. Well, seeing these kinds of results, okay, uh, people may be tempted to argue for a federally uh, imposed accountability. I mean, you see these results, you see how little learning seems to be happening, that many students are making it through college, taking easy classes. And you can get really concerned, and well-meaning people can, you know, suggest developing some kind of accountability system like we have in K through 12, okay? We strongly argue against that kind of a move, okay? We've argued in a book, we've argued other places, that developing a federal accountability system is not the way to go, okay? Um, It would have a number of unintended consequences. Our measures aren't ready for that kind of accountability system, right? So the federal accountability system is not the way to improve the higher education. Uh, in this country. We think accountability should happen at the lower levels in a system, and which are gonna talk about it in a minute in terms of what exactly do we mean by that. How do we facilitate accountability, not at a federal level, at an institutional level and lower levels in a system? Now, while we argue against federal government getting involved in accountability, we still think they should do something, and there are two avenues that they could actually help out and make substantial uh, you know, impact. One is, that they could provide resources to institutions like this one that are trying to innovate. They're trying to think about these issues, that are trying to develop new programs, new ideas, new strategies for tackling these issues. Right? They can facilitate innovation and reward institutions that are being uh, innovative and are considering these kinds of issues, but providing them with resources to do so. And the other thing that we think they really need to do is to collect data. You know, Again, in K-12, we have huge national data sets that tell us how well students are doing over time, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 of them. In higher education, we don't have that kind of data. The study we have here, it's good, it's solid, it's far from perfect, okay? We need large national data sets that will track large numbers of students across many institutions over time. So for social science purposes, so we can learn you know, what groups are learning, what groups are not? How can we identify what factors really make a difference and what factors don't? And we need that data for social science research.
2: So we, we have just a few more slides on what in, we think institutions should do, and then we'll open it up for, uh, for questions and answers. But the next one, what in, institutions should do, it really starts with a question before that. Why do we get these patterns? Why what is? Ex- If this is occurring across the board in higher education, in college after college after college that we looked at, if if the amount of studying has dropped in half in all sorts of institutions, if grades have gone up, if students are not getting exposed to reading and writing virtually everywhere, large pockets, something systematic is going on, right? It's not a question of bad actors, it's not a question of you know, some lazy students, or lazy faculty, or evil administrators. Something is going on in the system that the system is set up to give you these outcomes. And we argue very strongly in the book that what's going on is that all the incentives in higher education are to focus on something other than academic rigor and undergraduate learning. All the incentives from top to bottom are to focus on other things. So let's start, administrators, administrators, when they go and talk to their trustees and their regents, what do the trustees and regents ask them to, to, to focus on? What are the questions they ask that? Almost everywhere, you get the same kind of questions. First, what's the financial bottom line? How much money have you raised? How much external, uh, How much new faculty research dollars have you brought in? How, what is the graduation rate of your students? What are the entering test scores of students? All sorts of questions like this. What about the new, how many new buildings have you put up? All worthy goals, but notice nowhere on that list is how are students learning? Nowhere on the list are trustees and administrators asking the most basic question, how are you measuring undergraduate learning on your campus? Where is it, uh, where are their problems? There's problems in every institution. Where are their problems and what are you doing to fix it? If trustees and regions don't ask administrators those questions and hold them accountable, well, how are you going to get changes down below? Then go down to the faculty, hardworking, hard-working people. Right Highly selected people, yeah, giving their lives to be educators and to devote to their research. What are they asked to do? Well, the faculty in the room know the answer. It's all increasingly, no matter where you are, it's about research and scholarship, for promotion, for tenure, for raises, for outside offers. It's all driven by research and scholarship, right If teaching is valued at all, how does it measure? You know that, right? Course evaluations, right? The end of the semester. What, how did I do in my course? Did you like it? Well, you know, I keep telling my students, I don't care if you liked it. What's that got to do with it? Did you learn? The course evaluations promote, encourage, incentivize, dumbing down the curriculum, being entertaining, giving easy grades, that's tracks with course evaluation, the higher course evaluations, everyone knows that. So it's, it's worse than not measuring teaching at all. The instruments they're measuring teacher with actually incentivize the wrong thing. What about, you know, what do administrators reward on campuses and uh, colleges and campuses? Well, if students have wrongly fig- thought that it's all just about a credential and they figure out Department X is where you go for uh, an easy ride, an easy ride, five or fewer hours a week studying, trust me, you'll get a 3.2 GPA, you'll get a credential, easy, easy, easy. And students shift into these easy majors, what do administrators do? Hey, you got enrollment growth, let's give you staff, new staff, new faculty lines, where they, uh, you know, don't be the department, the, uh, like a philosophy or you know, religion department, where you're holding the line, where's your enrollments? What can we do for you? Again, not bad, it's not that the administrators are bad and evil, it's that the whole system is set up to incentivize, not academic rigor, but the opposite. It's set up, if you will, to lead to a race to the bottom. And that's why we're getting it across the board and in institution after institution after institution. So yeah, how do you fix it? How do you, how do you, how do you go about changing you know, such a thing that has structural causes, institutional cultures that are, that are not aligned with the outcome you want? Right? You get the outcomes that are incentivized in the institution. If you don't incentivize undergraduate learning and academic rigor, you don't get it. Well, We've got a few ideas, we are social scientists, you know, these are just our best ideas, but we think it starts with administrative leadership, right, administrative leadership has to be consistent in symbolically and substantively valuing academic rigor and undergraduate learning, putting those things first and communicating that symbolically and communicating it substantively, where where they invest their resources in, okay? And of course, I we uh, um, uh, there's a, uh, an op-ed that was was handed out here. We've I've ridden colleges and trustees across the uh, trustees across the, the country, ask the fa- ask administrators, ask the president and provost, what are you doing to measure learning? Where are their problems? How are you doing to improve it? And if they can't answer, hold them accountable because there's no one who should be running a school, I don't care if it's elementary or secondary or higher ed in this country that can't answer those basic questions. Okay, symbolically and and substantively value these things, but it's very important that that this is not imposed top-down from administration. You gotta work with faculty, faculty uh, uh, have to be at the forefront of this. And so I move from administrative leadership to what I think is equally important, faculty leadership. Academic coursework, academic curriculum, it's a faculty matter. And so it is ultimately not, you know, the administrators have to have to show some leadership, which I don't think they are in the system as a whole. But faculty have to be at the forefront uh, of, of facing these problems and showing leadership and that means collective action. You can't just fix this by yourself. If you just put rigor in your courses, hold the line with higher standards, you know what's going to happen. The students will go elsewhere. The course evaluations will go down. It's a, it's a, it's a systemic problem. There's a, there's a, there's a game a game system character to this you have to have a collective solution where you write, the standards go up together, standards go up together, you have to have agreement. what does a course require in terms of reading and writing not, not syllabi syllabi, by syllabi, but in general, what are our standards? What are we trying to do here? That faculty has the responsibility for that and Uh, And so that's first and foremost. On on an interpersonal level, there is things you can do. We show in our results what we've known in K-12 education for decades. Higher expectations matter. You can say I have demonstrate high, communicate high expectations for your students. Show them that you, you expect them. You expect them to do the work. You expect them to do reading and writing requirements and study long hours and we're gonna, you know, you have to communicate that expectation and the, that communication will actually change student outcomes and we, de- we empirically demonstrate this here and it's been done in K-12 education for decades. Uh, faculty review criteria. What are faculty being evaluated on in terms of promotion, tenure, raises and so on? Now this is a delicate question and one that really has to be answered institution by institution. But faculty as a whole should get together on their campus and say, do we have this right? Do we have the balance between research and teaching and service, do we have that right? Or is there something, have we, have we over time slipped and gotten that out of, that's gotten out of, uh, 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 the balance is off now? again. And when you measure teaching, you do it not with these course evaluations, which measure the wrong thing, but with multiple indicators to assess teaching quality. Now, we know how to do that. It's not rocket science. You look at syllabi, what's on the syllabi, you look at student work, and you do peer observations where faculty go in and and evaluate each other, right? We can do this. We can do this if we're committed to it and if you have the will to do it. Finally, and this is uh, our our last real slide, there are other things that administrations can do in order to support all these efforts. First of all, we believe there should be institutional research capacity. Colleges and universities, uh, uh, we don't believe in accountability coming down from the federal government or from the state because the most variation in learning is within your college and university. But in order to get that, you gotta have a good institutional research office that looks at student outcomes across the whole college and university to identify prob- areas that need improvement and areas that are exemplary, right? You have to have a good IR office to do that. Second, you need a teaching and learning center. Faculty, this is, uh, comes, I see a lot of students in this audience, this comes as a surprise to some students, faculty, who are up in front of you teaching, by and large have often had no preparation, or if I'm gonna be generous, little to no preparation on how to teach. They're trained to do research and scholarship. They're trained in their doctoral programs to be the best at at the research and scholarship area in their disciplines. And so they often come to colleges and universities not really knowing how to to teach. some of it you can, you can figure out as you go, but since we're not preparing our PhD students to be t- uh, good teachers, you gotta have the supplementary resources at the institution, the teaching and learning centers, to, to uh, help support those that are struggling in this area and wanna do better. Finally, student support services. Now, if you look at the trends in higher education over the last three decades, the number of full-time faculty is in sharp, sharp, steep decline. Sharp, steep decline. Colleges and universities increasingly are spending money on student support services. Those numbers are going up, up, up. If the model of a a college and university is a consumer-client model, then you need a lot of support services to keep the consumers and clients happy, to support them, in their dormitories, in their social life, in their, in their uh, um, athletic facilities, and so on and so on and so on. And so these professional staff positions are on the increase everywhere. Now some of that stuff is good. I'm not gonna say, you know, I don't wanna, uh, I don't wanna say that there's no benefits to it. To, to, uh, a lot of it is very good. But some of it is really, it's great if you could afford it, but you can't do everything. So where are the resource allocation decisions gonna be based? They have to be based on supporting the core of the mission which is about undergraduate learning and the faculty and full-time faculty have to be at the forefront of that, right? They have to be, that's where the investment has to, has to be. If there is support services and there, sh- there should be some, you gotta make sure it's aligned with the academic outcomes you want. It's not just supporting student engagement for its own sake. It's aligned with getting the academic outcomes you want to see. We're happy to take questions. These are our email addresses. We have a website, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, highered.ssrc.org. We've got free reports on this. If you you don't got the money to buy the book, please go online. download a free uh, PDF report where we have the four-year data findings and uh, uh, some of our findings. We have all the media coverage up there, some resources to use as well. Uh, And of course, we have the Doonesbury Strip from uh, August uh, up there. Uh, You'll find that there too. Uh, Thank you for being uh, uh, such a gracious audience, and we're happy to take questions. Uh, question in the back there. Hi, I, um, I'm a brand new faculty member here, and uh, I had a great uh, new faculty orientation where they assured me repeatedly that um, their, uh, that academic rigor was correlated with a positive student evaluation. Uh, but you just mentioned something to the contrary. I wonder if, if you're aware of any actual. if you're aware aware of any actual actual studies studies, uh, that would support positive student evaluations with um, high academic rigor. Yeah, so uh, there's some really good work on on this. Um, They're correlated most strongly with expected student grade, Um, the grade that a student expects to get. And there's some logic for this. If the faculty tells me I'm getting an A, you know, I must be learning something, it must be a good course, right? So there is some logic. The best work out there is by uh, uh, a biostatistician who is at Duke named Valen Johnson. He's got a book on this where he looked at the micro-level data in Duke and basically did a lot of complicated things and and showed, for one, it turns out one thing you can do is students that get high course evaluations in your, uh, sorry, students that are in classes with high course evaluations, should be able to go on to their next classes and do better than other students, right? They were in classes with that were higher quality. Turns out that's not the case. In fact, you find students picking classes that are going to be uh, based that are that are based on published um, course evaluations that are going to be easier, and so they don't track with kind of improved long-term student outcomes which would be associated with academic rigor in fact uh, they They, they, uh, they track with something else now of course as a new faculty member, you know You're in here you we we have as individuals. We have professional integrity and so You know, it's not I don't believe that we're uh, We're in a situation where everyone is just so cynical. They're just gaming the system and kind of you know however the incentives overall are pointed in the wrong direction. Okay? And, and one of the incentives is the course evaluations, regardless of whether you get high, high, uh, uh, high course evaluations or not. But valent Val Johnson's piece is the best piece on that.
1: Hi, um, at one point in, your, um, in this program, you um, said that how, um, how much fun the students had wasn't really as important as how much they were learning in terms of valuations, which I would almost question, because I'm only a freshman in college, so I only have high school experience to draw on, but the classes that I learned the most in were also the ones I had the most fun in, because I had one professor that, or teacher, that really knew his stuff, but he was so boring that nobody learned anything. So I would almost wonder if there should almost be some focus on enjoyment, as well as how much education you're getting, because when you're having fun, from my experience, you're also learning more.
3: Okay. That's a good point, right? Nobody wants to be in a 300-person lecture with a boring professor up front, like what we did, right? Going through PowerPoint slides. Uh, But you survived through this, so maybe you learned something, too. I think that's an important point, right? but I think there's a balance. Right? There's a difference between figuring, and, and lots of research has been done on figuring out how to do lectures well, for example, particularly if you're working in big lectures. Um, how to connect with students, how to give them real world examples, right? how to add some humor, um, but that's very different. Right? Combining that with substance, with hard requirements, requiring the reading and the writing, with grading, You know, hard and making sure students are getting the material, right? It doesn't mean those don't have those can work together. It just oftentimes they don't, right? You have an engaging, very outgoing, fun, amusing instructor who gives multiple-choice exams, and you know, 80% of the class gets A's, right? That's where the problem comes in, where um, the the kind of the amusement value is higher than the learning value, and so if we can combine the two. Excellent. And you have to be engaged and you have to care to learn, right? So we get that, that you have to actually, you know, get the material in an approachable kind of a way. But there's a difference between that and being amusing and entertaining.
0: Hello. Um, I'm in the Educational Leadership Program here. It's a graduate program at the university, and I was wondering what your thoughts are on service learning and how much of an emphasis perhaps that should be placed in our classrooms.
3: Um, You know, the evidence is very mixed. Um, I think a hard time with a number of programs are that we don't have very good evidence on what kind of outcomes they produce because we've asked students how much they learned, and they say they have learned across the board. Um, So I think, you know, if I were to do a a service uh, program, I would want to make sure that I could demonstrate improvement, That, that the students who are part of the program are really engaged and are really showing gains on skills we believe they should. And I think this is one thing to really take away, that anything you do, you can do well or poorly. Okay, so you can have a great service learning program in which students are really engaged, they're being asked to do a lot, they're being asked to connect their service with their academic work, to actually write and read and integrate. Okay? And you can have a service learning program in which basically it's an excuse not to do academic work. Um, And so I think that's the case. It's not about a program, it's about how that program is structured, how well it's connected to academics, and how well can you demonstrate that students are actually doing the work and showing the gains.
2: Hi there. You indicated in your research that students who majored in traditional studies uh, saw the greatest increase in the critical competencies. Is there a correlation, or uh, why is this? And then secondly, is there anything that can be
1: incorporated into the other studies that would improve uh, the students' um, critical competencies?
2: Yeah, so we did, uh, uh, we go into this in much greater depth in the book, Uh, and what we uh, again find is that first of all, the pattern, that students in math and science, in particular, but also humanities and social sciences, have the greatest gains in on the CLA measure from when they start to when they end, and the programs with the lowest gains are uh, business, communication, and education and social work. Now, part of this is perhaps sorting and uh, sorting and selection into the programs. Right, students don't aren't randomly assigned to these majors. Right, they have. Uh, there's unmeasured factors. We try and control for everything we could control for SAT, prior SAT, family background, high school AP courses, high school grades, but our measures are imperfect, and it's possible that on an unmeasured thing, they sort into different types of students, sort into math and science, and then they sort into uh, um, uh, education, communication, and so on. However, and this is the big however, in the book, we also break down our measures. Courses with more than uh, 40 pages of reading uh, per week. Courses with more than 20 uh, uh, pages of writing over the course of the semesters, our studying. And those, those majors that I, that I singled out as showing the greatest gains are also the same measures that are the highest on these indicators so these programs you know they are academic rigor measures as imperfect as they are show that those majors are where the pockets of colleges and universities in general in our national data is where the most academic rigor is and other parts of the university the applied uh, the more applied uh, uh, professional programs we see we see less of it some of it selecting but some of it seems to be this academic rigor differences. Sir. uh, Oh, you have the microphone. The microphones are much more powerful than my my, uh, uh, individual. Ken is mightier than the sword. Um, You know, you had your uh, policy implications for faculty and for the administration, but it occurs to me that without being too cynical about this, uh, there are some students who are interested in their education and what would you say uh, would be the kind of policy implications for students who really care about the quality of education that they're getting at any institution? Uh, because really, those are the consumers. I don't really think everyone is here for a race to the bottom. Okay. So um, so yeah, we were, uh, we were asked to, uh, uh, we spoke earlier in the day at 1 o'clock to a, uh, an entirely student audience. And we, we were told to gear that talk more to the students. This one more to the faculty and administration. So we did a, we did a kind of a different talk with, on that theme there. But let me say a, f- a few things here because there are a lot of students here. First, ultimately it's the individual student's responsibility to learn or not. Now the system is set up to make it easy not to learn, easy to take courses and programs where you're not challenging yourself and not getting those outcomes. But it's your responsibility ultimately to make those choices. Right? To choose which courses you take and how many hours you study, and what you're going to get out of this, uh, uh, what, what you're going to get out of this experience. So we we think that's absolutely uh, the case. That ultimately it's a, it's the student responsibility. However, again, I think we've set up the structure so that it's too easy for them not to learn. And I think the second point is as important. Students have come in often with the understanding that colleges and university is to get a credential with the little, least amount of work for labor market success. I just want a credential, that's all I need. It's gonna to transfer to academic success. And I think we've done a lousy, lousy job of providing a counter-narrative to them and getting up in front of them and in every moment saying, That's not what this is about. This is about something entirely different. This is about taking your academics seriously, focusing on on this coursework because that's the only way you're gonna get these gains in your higher order skills, in your ability to write and communicate. Those are the things that are not only gonna help you get a job, but it's also central and required to be a democratic citizen in our society. And the evidence that we're not doing that is, again, a third of the, of the students, they're college graduates, they're not reading the newspaper, right? They have no idea that to be an educated college graduate, an educated elite in this country, you've got responsibilities to the society to follow what's going on and to make judgments. And we've done a very bad job of telling them, if you think that you're here today, it's about your labor market success it's about so much more, it's about our, how do we as a society, as a whole, st- make rational democratic decisions and stay competitive in a global economy. You know, Even if you believe, don't believe the data and say it was always like this in colleges and universities. You know what's not always like this? The global economy, <clears throat> where we face a competitive economic situation in, with Asian and European countries and what have you, that this is not good enough, five hours per week studying. That's not good enough, not just for you as an individual, but for our society as a whole. And we are doing an awful, awful job of communicating to to our students that, the moral imperative of what this whole thing is about. And colleges and universities, and I'll stop, I'm a little animated here, but the, the <laughs> colleges, you know, we forget that they were set up in this country primarily around these, these moral imperatives. So they were set up with larger moral functions. Most of them were initially set up by religious institutions, okay? And then the ones that weren't were public land grants that again had a, central, had a, had a, had a much larger social pu- function and purpose. And we've gone so far away from that to this consumer client model that we really have to kind of pull it back to kind of what is, th- what is this all about? What's the purpose and function of why we're here together in this community, you know, sitting together and working together for, you know, for four years, uh, you know, with students on these outcomes.
4: Hi, um, since many of your results fell out of the CLA, I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit the validity and reliability of the CLA paying particular attention to the fact that since the CLA involves grading essays, psychometric research has found that the reliability of grading essays is around 0.5 at best.
3: Okay. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, grading those essay students right. It's much easier to uh, grade a multiple choice exam than essays. Um, there is a study that compared, so CLA is one measure. It it has shortcomings. The fact that it is not a multiple choice, the fact that it is an open-ended essay, we think has a lot to do with validity of the measure. It possibly has questions on how reliable that measure is. There are other measures that are um, multiple choice measures, so CAP and MAP being two of them, and actually a new one, CAD, developed at Tennessee. Um, There's actually a study online, you can look, that compares the three measures, and looks at their validity uh, across different samples of students and tries to make sense of them. One thing that I would point out is that if you look at our results based on CLA, and if you look at the Wabash data that Richard mentioned earlier that uses a CAP, which is a multiple choice test, different sample, different number of students, different number of institutions, the gains over four years are virtually identical. Okay, so ours is about 0.47, theirs is about 0.44 standard deviations. Okay, so you have two measures that potentially have very different issues that produce identical results. And I think that gives us some pause to think about, you know, we need to improve the measures, we need to make them better, we need to work on developing them. At the same time, different measures, different samples, different students, same results gives us some uh, reason to pause.
2: I mean, the the trouble is uh, the CLA with all its flaws, and we're the first to acknowledge its limitations, there's no other better measures out there. And all the other measures that are out there, they're showing the same thing. And again, if it was just the CLA results weren't great, dismiss it, go home, relax. Remember, we started with the course requirements and the hour studying. You can't dismiss that stuff as easy. There's something going on here that we have to have the courage to face. And just saying that the CLA measure is flawed and imperfect, that, you know, I'm the first to agree with that. But that it's, it's the best we have. If you don't like it, you know, the CAP result shows the same thing. And if you don't like the CLA and the CAP and the map that are all showing the same thing, come up with your own, come up with an indicator. Do, develop it. Okay? And until we can, we've got to face the reality of, of what the data is telling us. I note that you didn't demonize uh, social networking or electronic media unless, it's, unless those are subsumed under your recreation statistic, but your data about um, peer studying seems to correlate pretty well with research that came out of Stanford in 2009 about the inefficiency of multitasking and student misperceptions about that. Any comments? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, remember we were talking about the peer studying, and uh, again, we, um, um, uh, you know, these the I'm a progressive educator. I got nothing about you know I'm, I'm, am I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'd like to believe in kind of like getting kids together and working in groups would be a great thing. The data doesn't show that. The data, not that you can't do it, but it's a difficult pedagogical model. To 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 implement, and in fact, like the people that have done uh, ethnographies where they're looking at, at peer group study, and they find, that, for example, one thing that goes on is uh, intellectual bullying in the peer groups, where the the brightest students give all the grunt work to the to the other uh, students that they think are lower ability. The lower ability students get very little instructionally out of it, but the group as a whole produces the same. You don't have to design the group work that way, but it's difficult. And again, we don't train professors to teach in in the first place. Now, uh, you had a broader question about what are the effects of kind of the the social media and the technology and multitasking. Uh, Again, I think, remember we said students spend, on average, only eight hours a week studying alone, and 36% uh, study five or fewer hours a week studying alone. You know what? I went with uh, your provost to the library right before here and walked through the library and there were a lot of students out there with laptops. What I, what I observed was a third of them had Facebook up. A third, okay? Some of them have Facebook up in your, in your classes, as you know, right? What it means to study alone is completely different than today. It's you're, you're constantly bombarded with the social media and the Uh, um, the emails and the Facebook and the texting and so you don't have that that same uh, uh, an hour studying alone is different experienced differently than in the past now there is this stuff you know out of cognitive science we're sociologists not cognitive science so we're getting pretty far removed from our expertise here but there's interesting stuff there that that suggests that around the plasticity of the brain, that we're much, much better today at making snap judgments like you do on the internet, right? Go to that webpage, don't go to that webpage, this information, not it. We can sort through quick, 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 quick. Well, that part of our brains are strengthened, and the parts that do deep thinking around these higher order skills, critical thinking complex reasoning, those neural pathways, there's some evidence that are actually, they're, they're being weakened. Now again, I'm a sociologist. I don't even I don't know the the, the validity of that research and uh, the reliability of it, and so on. But it's interesting, and it's hard not to. And the multitasking stuff we do know that you, you know we think we can multitask, but uh, there's enough accident statistics on the on the highway about texting and driving that we know that's not true. You know. Yeah, this actually follows sort of on what you were just saying, and that is I'm wondering the extent to which what's happening in the university is a direct consequence, or at least strongly correlated, with what's happening in K-12, what's happening in the family, what's happening in the culture. In other words, how the students are when they get to campus now versus in 1960 or 1970, and what, you know, how that factors into our, our challenges.
3: Um, That's a good point in terms of what has happened uh, to higher education over time. Higher education is part of a society, right? We're not exempt from what happens in the rest of the world uh, and what happens outside of these walls. Uh, We are a part of that. Um, Now, you know, enrollment into higher education has grown over time. Different kinds of students have enrolled, but you know, there are different ways to look at it. One is if you look at those hours studying and those drops over time, Okay. Those jobs have happened for all groups, okay? for students from different family backgrounds, for students from different um, you know, racial ethnic backgrounds, students in different majors, students with different levels of preparation. Okay? It has happened for everybody. It doesn't mean there's no variation there, but it means that everybody has gone down. And so the, the question is, you know, we, the students we are getting now um, are arguably different. And and higher education has, at times, used it as an excuse. Right? We are getting students now who are not as prepared uh, to handle the challenges of higher education, who have all kinds of issues, and and that's true. But I think if you admit students, it is your responsibility to figure out how you are going to help them learn and develop. Um, and since the 1980s or 2000, the enrollment growth has really been at two year schools, not four year schools. Okay, four year schools had actually, you know, maintained relatively stable enrollments. And so the question here is yeah, are students different today than they were back then? Probably. Are we living in a different culture? Is this consumer attitude that we're talking about only in higher education? No, it's everywhere. Right? It's kind of coming into higher education from the outside. So are we working in a different world? I think we are working in a different world. But that just means that we have to think much more carefully about challenges and addressing the difficult world. Not to gonna say, well, you know, it's different now, it's more difficult, and so we can ignore it.
2: And uh, and again, we, our work, we study on value-added growth. And so students might be starting down here, but all students can learn. All students can be experience rigorous coursework and improve from it, or not. And so, uh, but absolutely, it's much. It is part of a broader problem uh, with d- very diverse uh, 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 causes. Um,
3: uh. Uh, first, off, oh. first off, thanks for coming. I really
2: appreciate it. Uh, I can take control of my learning and take responsibility for that. And thank God for professors who help you take control of your learning. Um, you shared strategic tactics for faculty and administration to uh, align their activity with the goal of promoting undergraduate education and learning, correct? You also suggested that it's the student's job to not become a statistic
0: how can I, well, yeah, I, I can not be a statistic, but how can I work to change the statistic without sending just emails to profs and admins, maybe a radical protest? What's something that I can do within reason to uh, change
2: the structure? Cause that's the biggest problem. Uh, so yeah, so, for, so first and foremost, it's you can make your own choices about taking, you know, not assuming that what you, exp- what you take for granted today? that you look down the hall, hey, I'm working a lot. I work, you know, I'm studying 10 hours a week, and the guys down the hall aren't working, I'm, uh, that's a lot. You know, so to understand that in a, the historic context, the social context, that it's not a lot compared to, you know, and then making choices about what courses you're gonna take, how much you're gonna work, how much you're gonna put into, individual is easy, okay? But the harder one is, like you said, how do you do it collectively as, uh, as students? Well, we just ended a period in U.S. history in the 1980s and 90s where the returns to a college degree were, were unprecedentedly uh, high. That, that having a college degree, a credential, translated into economic success. And so students were, in a sense, they were right to think, oh, it doesn't really matter what I do here. A college degree in the 80s and 90s is going to pay a lot. And it's going to pay a lot relative to a high school graduate or something else. You know what, something changed, starting not just with the economic crisis, but about five years before that, where the returns to higher education, which had been going up, 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 started to go in the other direction, down. And so as students become aware of that, that there's no guarantee that a college credential gives you a great job, then all of a sudden, I think as a group, students will start asking and not just asking, demanding more of, of uh, from their institution. Right now, in the past, if all you're demanding is, I want a nicer dorm, and I want a you know a student, uh, you know the credential was fine. I want a good, I want a dorm, a single room. I want a, a, a new sports facility. I want a new student center, and and the institution responds. What if people realize that? something's changed in the environment, the economic environment, and you gotta want something else. Well, you know, it's not bad administrators, it's not bad faculty, they will shift, you know, they'll shift too. So I think part of it is just kinda of going, uh, is, is students getting together and saying, we, you know, we want to take this enterprise seriously. It doesn't take 100% of students, you'll never get that, but just a if enough students start shifting and asking more of, them, of the institution and of themselves, I think you'd see real changes.
4: Real quickly, um, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the administrator and faculty dynamic that you talked about, and, and um, I guess as a pragmatic matter, I can't help but think about the impact that faculty have with students outside of the classroom. In mentorship roles. And um, I don't know if this is something you can measure or thought about um, investigating, but the relationship between the student that has a, a terrific advisor and can encourage them um, to take a, a very valuable journey through their academic career and encourage them to study and, and do these these other things that need to be done. Um, what sort of impact that has on a student and squishy as that may be, I guess the, the more perhaps direct question would be, have you noticed any sort of a correlation in the change between and, and any sort of alteration between regular faculty that are in higher education and temporary faculty or adjunct faculty that often don't have the responsibility for advising? And um, if that might have any sort of impact on what's going on, everything from retention to student success.
3: Um, you know, we don't look at it in our data. Uh, we, we don't look at the status of the faculty, but it, it's something that has really changed in higher education over time, right? It has uh, the f- facu- full time faculty are now only half of the instructional staff in higher education. Um, and we think that is a cause for concern. Not that adjunct faculty couldn't you know, teach very well, but again, it's how the institutional incentives are structured. The adjunct faculty are teaching four or five courses a semester, sometimes at multiple institutions. They have very little support at the institution, very little say at what happens at the institution. They're on a year-by-year contract, which means that those student evaluations matter even more for them, which means that they have even more of an incentive to, you know, make easy classes and give good grades, because if they don't, if they get bad evaluations, they won't have a job next year. As a tenured faculty member, I'll just get some mad student. Okay? But those faculty may not have a job. And so the extent to which we increase the proportion of faculty who not only have much direct contact with students and don't advise them, but also have very little, um, incentive for rigor and very little say at institutional level, I think we're definitely shifting in in the wrong direction and going away from rigor and going away from focusing on student learning.
5: Hi, my name uh, name is Earl and I'm a first-year graduate student in the mathematics department, um, getting a PhD in math education. And uh, this summer, when we were in our training to be teaching courses, we were told, uh, because we're teaching math 105, which is intermediate algebra, um, a requirement for their core for all students, um, that we should expect between 40 and 50% of our students to fail the first time taking our course. Um, That wasn't very encouraging, and after their first exam, they were certainly meeting that expectation. After that first exam, I had a very candid conversation with my students about the strategies that maybe got them through high school, We're not going to allow them to prevail here in college, and we talked about some strategies. What I'm wondering is, as an educator now and future educator, what can I do to encourage my students further to take control of their education and to, like uh, the student back here said, not become one of those statistics? Yeah, so um, one thing, uh, first of all, the math, uh,
2: students in math programs are actually doing pretty well, like in terms of the value gain in the CLA, probably not because they're all experiencing that instructional model. Uh, so um, uh, rigor doesn't mean failing students. Uh, but having high standards, how do, you do, how, do you do, how do you have high standards across the board? Right? How do you have high standards that, that people aren't gaming and going from course to course, uh, program to program? Well, I got a really easy way to do it. You ready? I got a solution. It's going to cost you nothing. Right? So get out your pens and pay okay, your, your, your pen. Very simple thing your course transcript. What grade did you get in the class? What is the average grade of the students in the class? One simple fix. Cost the institutions nothing. They can switch the switch like that. And so you end up knowing from the transcript, at the end, what is the student's GPA and what is the average difficulty of the class they took so that the grades have some meaning. So people can't game the systems with crazy hard grading like that and crazy easy grading somewhere else, right? It would be a simple, simple uh, uh, solution uh, to do and it would actually, employers might actually start looking at the transcripts again. We asked these graduates when they moved into the labor market, did the employer, for the 52% that actually had full-time jobs, did the employers ask to see the transcripts? By and large, they did not. There was about 20% of the students with full-time jobs, the employers wanted to see the transcripts. Employers don't want to see the transcripts because they don't know how to make heads or heads. It doesn't tell them valid information. And so what employers end up doing, a lot of them are doing something like what I do when, I'm, when, I, when, I, when I hire folks. I give, them, I give applicants a competency test. I give them something to do, a performance to do, you know, like the CLA. And you see what they can do, it tells you a lot more than where they got the diploma from and, and uh, what the GPA tells you. That tells you it doesn't give you much information anymore. So, but we could fix it by, again, simply just average course grade. Average course grade. You wouldn't have to impose a bell curve, you know, across the board, just simple fix. And it would go a long way to kind of, you know, sorting out this problem of kind of declining standards.
6: Hi, I'm a senior here at CMU, and I'm studying communication disorders. Um, In the state of Michigan, in order to be a speech therapist, you have to have a master's degree, um, pretty much period. So um, this past semester, CMU had 270 applicants, and they take 30. Um, So my courses are incredibly competitive. Um, This past year has been, and especially with this, your book um, has really hit home. Um, I graduated from high school with a 3.9 GPA, I carry a 3.88 now. And I don't remember the last time that I cracked a book. Um, so I guess two things for the student in the back. I would love to get together with whomever asked what a student could do, because um, you know, as for me, for the people that are teaching my courses right now, those are also the people who are deciding which of us are getting to grad school. I'm not in any position to tell them that they're doing a bad job. You know, I'm not really in any position to say, well, hey, I would like you to. You know, I'm I'm not in any position to demand more right now. Um, but I will say that it's very frustrating when I know that at $346 a credit hour for a four credit class, I was paying $33 and, and some odd change per session every day that I came to class. And after you crank those numbers out and you realize that you know, I've got a, a PhD speech language pathologist that's got 25 years of experience standing in front of me that has so much to offer, but yet I'm still memorizing this chart. I, I feel, I don't know for the math individual up there, um, but as a student for me, um, the, I, I think that you can even go with math for the, you know, the higher reasoning and the, the more complex thinking. How can I apply this to what I'm going to really do? How can I apply this, you know, um, chart of autism characteristics to what I'm actually going to do? Memorizing this chart isn't going to do me any good, but figuring out how I can apply what I've learned to this will. And I just find it incredibly frustrating when I get a test that says, you know, just a, a week ago and I'm in five, 600, 700 level classes, what, w- what is the definition of this? What is the definition of this? I don't, I can look up the definition of something, but I would like somebody who's got 25 years of experience to say, hey, this was a difficult situation for me, let me tell you what I did, or, you know, let me explain um, this from, you know, not a rote perspective or, you know, I, I just, anyway, so. Well,
2: I just, I, you know, I just want to say thank you, you know, uh, these comments from the students, mm-hmm. You know, or what? What makes this really, uh, you know, uh, rewarding? Not- <laughs> Thank you. So, um, Thank you. but let me uh, let me let me let me say something to the to both these students who who've, uh, talked. Uh, a, I have talked. There's have a friend and historian in um, uh, NYU who studied uh, the Berkeley Free Speech Movement, right, which is the start of the student movement in this country, and. He came to me after this book was published, and he said, this is the, is the, was one of the central issues of students who mobilized on the Berkeley campus around the free speech issue. They, they had all sorts of a political agenda, but one of their primary demands was that the institution there had become corporatized, militarized, it had been doing everything about instead of focusing on students in undergraduate education, and that they were that was a central demand of of the student movement at the time. It wasn't just all about stuff out there it was about stuff in here and taking control, demanding from your institutions that you're engaged in you know what you can what you should what naturally expect from them right you you know It's it's not not right to be in this kind of debt and not not have the institutions kind of coming to you and telling you this is what's required to be successful in in the in in the future and so on. So I'm just um, you know you guys you know that you're here and that you're thinking about this stuff really kind of makes uh, uh, makes the whole thing worthwhile for us.
5: Hi, kind of onto a different topic. Um, How do you account for the differences in students who are going to college these days? Um, As a graduating high school senior, um, I found that almost every single person I graduated with was going on to college, which is much different than it was in the 1960s, um, as you were referencing in your earlier research. How do you account for that in your research with the increasing numbers of students going to college? Um, it's not become a prestige to go to the university and get a degree um, like it was several decades ago.
3: Right, so I think, we, you know, students are now going to college at much higher rates. They're not graduating at higher rates. Actually, our graduation rates are flat or possibly declining, depends how you look at the data. Uh, but several points uh, that may be worth thinking about there. One is, that when students, high school students, get to college, okay, the beginning, if you ask them what they expect of college, many of them say they expect it to be much harder than high school. And then they get disappointed because they figure out that college is just as easy or maybe even easier, okay? So the fact that more of them are going doesn't mean you know, inevitably that college is this unattainable, a very difficult thing because college has become easier for many high school students who are now prepared to do that. Um, Also, I think the question is if we admit students, right, I think the responsibility of the institutions is to make sure that those students are learning and improving over time, right? I mean, you know, why? If we are admitting students into higher education, they are paying the tuition, they are getting the degrees, some of them. It is our responsibility to make sure that they're learning and they are improving over time. Um, and you know, They are different, times are different, but I don't think that changes the core responsibility that we've had in the 1960s and that we have right now, which is to make sure that undergraduate learning is at the core and that that is our mission and that's what we focus on and improve over time.
2: I think we have time just for one last question. And, um and then we'll call it at an evening.
0: I guess I get to be it. Um, I'm Lauren McConnell, I teach at CMU. Um, I was struck by your statistics about uh, the negative impact of, of group studying, and I wondered if you have any uh, good research on the effectiveness of group work in the classroom, because that's certainly a huge trend.
3: I can, you know, there is lots of great research on particular uh, models inside Uh, in classroom in particular, and sometimes inside learning communities um, versus outside of the classroom. The evidence seems to suggest that there are ways of structuring student learning in groups that are very productive, but it involves a great deal of training on behalf of faculty, a great deal of understanding on behalf of students in terms of how and what this task entails. It involves thinking through the evaluation procedures. So it's not impossible is that it's often not done that way, right? It's oftentimes that we tell students, here's a task, go find a group, go do it. And then, you know, they wait until the night before, and then somebody just decides, oh my God, this is due tomorrow, let's do it. Um, and that's not, you know, a productive way of doing it. And so I think that's, you know, it's, it's, doing collaborative learning well is an incredibly difficult task. Organizing teams and making teams be productive and really learning, as opposed to either you know, uh, kind of segregating out or crashing the night before is, is very difficult. So um, there is research, particularly in the sciences, that shows that particular forms of group learning, especially in a classroom, can be quite effective, um, but you know, that's not usually what, what we do.
0: I <laughs> don't